1: Just go to porkbun.com forward slash fm 24 That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N.com forward slash fm 24 You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. So, Mike, today's episode, it's a wild ride. It's got a little bit of everything. Cutting-edge technology, theft, lawsuits, a battle over the morality of ICE contracts, and... That sounds like plenty already. (laughs) I I was just getting started, but... Oh, man. (laughs) So today we have the story of Kairos, the facial recognition software founded by Brian Brackeen, a black founder who famously refused to sell or even contract with the government to the dismay of
0: his board. Those government contracts, they can be lucrative in the space.
1: Yeah, and, and what happened when their disagreement came to a head and the board they actually moved
0: to oust him. Which isn't something you commonly see for white founders, if we're being honest. Right,
1: not at all. Uh, but this is the story of a founder who refused to compromise on his values. So did he get ousted? Did they end up selling their software to the government? <laughs> all right, all right, not so <laughs> fast. right? We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get
0: started. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belcito.
1: So, Kairos was founded in 2012 by Brian Bracken and Amanda McClure.
0: And 2012, that's early for facial recognition.
1: Yeah, but they, they didn't initially set out to build a facial recognition platform at all. They actually set out to build a time clock application for small businesses. Okay. Yeah, so it's not exactly the natural first step, but here's Brian, their founder and CEO, talking about that transition from a time clock application to facial recognition software.
2: You know how Elon Musk has this, this talent, this gift for taking kind of an early idea years ago, about less carbon footprint in the world, right? And then just create this thing step-by-step, piece-by-piece over years to this kind of beautiful, elegant end. Um, I'm not like that. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like that. So I think my gift is really iteration. Um, I I started out the company doing payroll uh, on like mobile devices, right? So you could clock in, clock out for your shift on your phone. Um, and it was a time clock company, a mobile time clock company. Um, and so people started cheating the system. Like they were like, I would like call you like, Hey man, I'm going to be late. Like put my number in. And it's like, you know, right? and so we started using the front facing camera on the iPhone, which was new at the time. This is how like old, you know, things were, um, and then that changed everything and made the product better. But people started saying, Hey, like, I love your time clock, but can I use your facial recognition to do this, to do that, to do this for my business? Yeah. And like, that was like, the light goes off like, Oh, like let's do facial recognition for business. Like let's make it easier for them to use. Like that's a much bigger business. We could all get excited about that. Let's just run in that direction. And then the company just took off
0: So Brian and his team have a strong signal that facial recognition is the pivot that they need and they go full on into it. It was actually around
1: this time that I was running a brand asset management startup called Brandisty. um, And his design team was one of our first early customers. And that's how I actually first heard of Brian and Kairos.
0: Interesting. Okay. So when he says it took off, he really means it took off.
1: Yeah, not long into the journey, they were processing close to a billion faces a year for everything from like summer camps to large companies like Walmart and Disney.
0: Here's Brian again, giving us an example of how they would work with, say, a summer camp.
2: What camps do oftentimes is they send pictures of all the campers every day. You've got to kind of like search through the pictures to find your kid, because honestly, you don't care about you know, other, some other kids, you know, summer, right? You don't care what... What, what team we had for dinner, right? You want to see your kid, right? <laughs> and so they use facial recognition so that they can show and bubble up just your kids' pictures for you when you log in to see how your kids are in camp.
1: It's very cool. And and he goes on to explain the type of work that they would do for those large customers as well.
2: For people like the, for NBC and Fox, those folks, they may want to know, like, show me every single frame that Tiger Woods is in an image. They say he's happy. They just want to master or whatever. And they need a picture for the background or for just a video clip of Tiger Woods being happy, right? So they can just search Tiger Woods happy, and it goes through all the photos, finds all Tiger Woods ones, finds all the ones where he's got this emotion and then shows them those pictures. They can use whatever they want. So it's for solving those needle in the haystack problems. Find something in this larger group that I care
0: about. Now, this technology, this wasn't something just cobbled together quickly. This was developed over an eight-year period, right? This wasn't a weekend hack project. They put in the work.
2: I'd say over an eight-year period, the first, and this is true for AI, the first four are trash, right? (laughs) Like what happens is AI is like a kid, um, and so like a newborn can't communicate, doesn't know what you're talking about, you know, just basically cries, that kind of thing. I mean you have to feed it, right? Now you have to feed its child knowledge so that it can like slowly get better and better, better and better. And hopefully that you'll be at the end. It's the learning that matters. And 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 almost think about like almost like like any of us, the more experience we can get earlier, the kind of the, the better we are on the trajectory, trajectory right? Um, same is true for AI. You've got to say, this is a face, this is a face, this is the face, this is a smile, this is a smile, this is, a smile. This, is a, this is what this is this emotion. That emotion. You just feed it like almost like like cue cards hundreds of thousands or actually hundreds of millions of times um, until it learns what those things are in new pictures or new faces that it hasn't seen in the past. This is what we call going from in the techie world, unsupervised, uh, for, from supervised learning to unsupervised learning, where it can start to learn by itself without any cue cards. And so that, for us, that happened about four four to four and a half years in. Um, and then after it, that starts to happen, the accuracy goes way up, way up. And then you get a product that's worth buying.
0: So it took years to train their algorithm, not just on how to match a face, but detect emotions and other features. And they're actually one of the early companies to productize all of this and make it available to the business community at scale. When
1: Keros was founded, the market for facial recognition software was in its infancy and largely driven by government contracts.
2: I mean, when we first started the company, it was like yeah. there's very, 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 very few people in the market, like at all. Um, It wasn't a thing. Also AI, though AI existed. I founded the company in 2012. Um, So AI existed in 2012, but not in the way that we understand it today. Um, So these problems were very, very difficult and they were were solved in actually different mathematical ways than they were later on. So I'd say the market um, was was very limited, Um, mostly government use um, and very slow, very, you know, like all technology, very clunky and not very accurate. Um, so for really for me, but really more the team, um, a real vision to say we could do this, let's just go that direction.
1: Now, they also had a secret weapon in all of this. And that secret weapon was Brian himself, right? Mm -hmm. There's a bias in all technology. And in most facial recognition system studies, they have found that they misidentify people of color more than white people. The term
2: we use in science sometimes is pale male. So the paler you are, the male you are. Um, the more of those initial cue cards you're giving the algorithm, right? Those, and so it only learns that, and it has a hard time with every dimension off of pale male. So even a white woman, the, the, the average algorithm is 30% less effective on white women than it is on white men. And that's like still both on the one end of the spectrum. There's still a lot of humans on the other side, right? Um, so we became experts at this problem. We, we trained our algorithm on all different kinds of colors, all different races, ages, gender, you name it. Um, and So we ended up with a really strong differentiated product. So much so that I was on a panel at South by with the head of facial recognition for the FBI. And he said at the panel publicly to everyone, the facial recognition is far superior to what we use at the FBI, right? So. Leading to your next question like that's and that's when governments started to, to come and ask to use it
0: I, I remember reading about this i think i mean asian and african-american people were up to like a hundred times more likely to be misidentified than say white men uh, depending on the particular algorithm and the type of search and Native Americans had the highest false positive rates of all ethnicities. I believe that was according to a study by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is a federal laboratory.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that study was done in 2019. Now, most of these technology companies are being led by white men, trained by white men, and then tested by white men, but not Kairos. Brian made sure that his team trained their algorithm on a diverse set of data, making it the most accurate facial recognition system across both gender and race. I think I can tell it- this is starting to get going. (laughs) Yes, so we're just getting started here. After the break, we'll find out what the government wanted to do with Keros' technology and what led to the now infamous board fight. All right, before the break, we were discussing the bias in most facial recognition software and how Kairos had trained their algorithm differently to more accurately
0: detect across race and gender. Now, most facial recognition companies were, and maybe still are, mostly funded by government contracts.
1: But Brian, early on, fearing the misuse of his technology, put a stake in the ground and said, we're not working for or selling to any law enforcement agencies, including the government.
2: We, I would say, kind of owned the conversation on the facial recognition side around not working with the government i was i mean when we when we first said to the world that we weren't going to work with the government um i don't think that there were any facial recognition companies that had ever even said that as a as a thing there was literally no and there may still not be um there was literally no facial recognition company at the time that wasn't doing government work because it's the only way that you could kind of sustain yourself uh, We were a lean team, small team. Uh, We'd raised some venture capital, so we didn't have to have all those dollars. And we took a longer view. uh, That that just wasn't the right thing. Also, I am fairly sure that at at the time, and possibly still now, um, was the only um, black facial recognition CEO um, in the country. Um, So probably North America, and South America and Europe. There may have been a couple in Africa, I hope. Um, but, it's a, you know, it's a very short list.
0: So, Brian was very clear that they weren't going to go down this route when they raised capital. He was upfront every time a new government contract would cross his desk. But at some point, his board saw the dollar signs and they wanted in. And
1: Brian fully understood both sides of the argument here. On one hand, their technology would lead to less false positive, which in law enforcement has a drastic and even deadly consequence when
0: they get it wrong, especially for people of color. On the other hand, though, I mean, his technology in the hands of, say, the Trump administration, that could be used in racist and abusive ways, at least from Brian's perspective.
2: on On the bad side, we didn't have to imagine... These are the requests themselves were were offensive. So, like, so like, one of the requests from a big government contractor was the Trump administration. This is at the end, so this Trump is already at this point um, wanted to do facial recognition on main streets. They wanted to set up cameras like in like in the road and then look for undocumented immigrants as they drove by in their car. And then the second camera facing the other direction take a picture of their license plate and then they would go to that person's house and then remove them from the country like in a mass surveillance kind of world uh, uh hell no absolutely not like we had a request from taser to they were doing an r&d project about putting facial recognition on body cam so like again the theoretical use case actually isn't too bad it's like so the officers is a bad guy they're known to be armed and dangerous You maybe a, a little vibration or some kind of like feedback Right. Um, and then they can protect themselves before they even know who the person is but on its face. I absolutely think that that's a very positive thing, right? What happens is we've discussed the bias and facial recognition algorithms. And so if I'm going to be wrong about women, 30% more than men. And I'm going to, I'm going to get a false positive, right? That someone who actually is innocent is guilty. And I'm going to get a Pavlovian vibration. That means I can go for my weapon and I can say, listen, I got, I got, I was told, and that's You can almost be argument that that's actually fair to the officer, but they were told that this person was dangerous. And so they were on high, high alert. Right. And so it just, it's just, no, it's a no for me. It was just, consistently, I, I want to do summer camp, facial recognition. I want to do retail stores. Fine. Let's, let's stick to that. There's plenty of money.
1: In that. This while, wall- Unsurprising is honestly a disgusting use of this technology. I understand why he fought so hard to stay out of this side of AI and facial recognition.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no redeeming side to this. I mean, someone unfortunately though is going to take the contract and execute on it, but it's not going to be Brian. But his board saw it differently.
2: So the government keeps knocking on door, knocking on door, knocking on door, and I keep sending them away, sending them away, and the investors they don't want to put any more money in. They want, like, take their money, take the government money, take this, you know, whatever. I think it it, it got to be so just ridiculous, the the kinds of, like, requests that they would have. And I also think race plays a huge role in that, too. And I'm not, and your viewers wouldn't know this from, you know, from my life, but I'm really, I'm generally kind of uh, not one of these kind of, not rah-rah kind of guys, um, but, and not the race car, you know, calling guys, but it's we just see time and time again that the transformational black founder is seen as lucky and the the white founder is seen as Mark Zuckerberg, has to be protected at all times, has to have a special class of stock, supermajority voting rights. We got to make sure that Mark is happy. He is the thing that makes this thing go, right? And you see what happens with Facebook, the way it's behaved. You see how how it's happened at WeWork before they got rid of Adam Newman, Like, no one should really be kind of a, above. And yet, with with Black founders, they're replaced at such a high rate by these investors. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's exactly what i in my case.
1: Okay, now it was much more than pressure that they were putting on him. As Brian puts it, they didn't have the vision he had. He saw a huge opportunity in having the most diversely trained algorithm. Companies like Amazon already had issues with this. And there was a growing market of enterprise use cases where he could be the leader in that market. Plus, he's one of the only Black founders in the space, so he actually saw an advantage in that acquisition story of having a Black man lead a facial recognition at a large company at, say, Amazon, right? This would be
0: a huge PR win for them. But his board could only still see government contracts.
2: What do you do if you've got this kind of well-liked Black founder, right? You've gotta try to, like, drag him, right? You got to see, like, oh, he's horrible, he did this, he did that. They said I took
1: $30,000. The board initiative was led by Stephen O'Hara, and they removed Brian as CEO as they, they moved into this lawsuit.
0: And they put Melissa Dorval in the CEO position while the lawsuit went through court. They claimed that Brian stole $30,000 from the company by making purchases on his company credit card that were for personal use. The board claimed Brian misled shareholders and potential investors, misappropriated corporate funds, didn't report to the board of directors and created this divisive atmosphere. Caros, the company, also followed that up with a lawsuit alleging theft and breach of fiduciary duties, among other things. Was there any merit to this claim? That
1: and more after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: So before the break, the Kairos board had removed Brian from the company and filed a lawsuit against him claiming that he misappropriated company funds and breached his fiduciary duties. But it didn't end there. Brian countered with a lawsuit
1: seeking to hold Kairos and Dorville accountable for intentionally destroying his reputation and livelihood through fraudulent conduct, the publication of malicious falsehoods, and the commission of
0: illegal corporate acts. He alleges
1: Kairos refused to pay him the compensation for which he was
0: entitled. Dorval, in a rather miscalculated move, released a public statement. Uh, we've come to expect this behavior on his behalf, and we stand firmly with our original complaint, and the courts will rule in our favor once they're presented with the evidence for the case. Our fiduciary duty is to our stakeholders, and we remain dedicated to doing right by them. But you know what? They didn't,
1: right? The court eventually ruled in favor of Brian, citing no wrongdoing and forced Dorval, the board, and Karos to pay him compensation for dragging his name through the mud.
0: And look, uh, time and time again, this is often the playbook for discrediting black men in America. Our media already purports this narrative of black men as criminals. Uh, Melissa Dorval, Stephen O'Hara, Karos, they tried to use this playbook against Brian in this greedy attempt to sort of cash in on what he built and go after government contracts, which he said from the beginning they were never going to go after. Yeah, but you know what? Brian didn't even need
1: the $30,000.
2: I'm a fourth-generation millionaire in my family. Not very often you hear that amongst African-Americans. I, I haven't needed $30,000 in my life. I needed my father. I needed it my grandfather. I needed it my great-grandfather was a doctor in San Diego, Texas. He's the only guy in town with a car, you know, white or black. So, like, this idea, but, you know, but, but it's not about the reality. It's about what do you do when you trying to get rid of a black guy? You say he's you say a thief or whatever. It's disgusting. And so that's true. They went that uh, route. Um, I sued them. One, and, and this is the funny thing. They ended up owing me money. goes <laughs> to show how
0: ridiculous. Okay, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I guess maybe we all, including me, have a little bias.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't either in the interview. Um, but, you know, it, it cracked me up, right? And so after the lawsuit, Brian didn't go back to Carospin. Um, but Melissa Dorville, Stephen O'Hara, and everyone else involved in pushing him out and, and kind of going forward with the smear campaign immediately resigned, and the
0: company is now under new leadership. And through all this, talk about destroying company value, for this nonsense, Carol's was valued at $120 million, but – Right after the lawsuit, it was selling shares at a $1.5 million valuation. That's the price of racism. So now Brian has gone on to found Lightship Capital.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the ethos behind Lightship Capital is really at its kind of core to be the investor in never had, right? Um, We're focused on a couple, a couple really unfair situations in society. For those that are in the Midwest and the South, um, these are the best places in the country to start a business um, and yet all the venture capital goes to the coasts. And so when you look at, there's been studies done that we share with our, our investors, for every dollar you put on the map, for every dollar you put in the Midwest, you can get a, you get a $5.17 return on your money. when you exit in the Midwest, you get a $3.47 return in San Francisco and in the, and that part of the country because it costs so much more money to build a business there there's so much more venture capital and you're exiting for the same amount. The the deal is no matter where you are in the the country, you could be in Idaho, you could be in New York city. If you're doing a hundred million dollars revenue, you're going to get bought for the same amount. Like it's, it's math. Like we're going to pay you three times revenue. Here's your 300 million. It doesn't matter where you are. Right? Like, so if that's the truth, why would you, why would you build a company in the cheapest place in the country? if you're going to get the same amount of money at the end. Right, so that's first piece of a thesis is the Midwest, primarily, and also the South are our place that we look to the most. The second piece of thesis is there are people that are underrepresented in that group, right? And so, take women, for instance, right? They're half the population, right? But receive like three percent of all venture capital dollars. Yeah, less <laughs> than It just like the the, the that. Yeah, that gap, and it's literally a financial term. That market failure means that there are really great opportunities in those in those women that are just not going invested. And so we often tell our investors that the actual reality is there are two ponds on one on each side of the street. There are a hundred guys in San Francisco and New York trying to catch five fish in the pond on the one side of the street. I'm over here. <laughs> In a fish in a pond full of fish. I would look like literally by myself, like, where am I? No one to talk to. You. I'm just catching fish all day.
1: And then he told me this incredible founder story, and his ethos around the opportunity really started to click.
2: A company called Prove. It's a progesterone ovulation test. Progesterone is an important hormone for both getting pregnant for women and staying pregnant. Um And Dr. Amy Beckley, who was a scientist at the University of Michigan, uh, had seven miscarriages. And you can imagine how impactful that is for someone. Um, Most of anyone I know, actually. Um, And so she was like, that's it. Like, I'm gonna solve my own problem. Like, I I can't go through this. Um, And so she goes into her basement, literally her basement, and creates a shelf stable FDA cleared progesterone test in her basement. Sells a bunch of kits, tens of thousands of dollars of kits on Kickstarter, right. Um, successful, um, takes all this kind of success and goes to the JP Morgan biotech showcase in San Francisco to tell all the investors in the room, this is what I've done. Like let's, let's, uh, let's see if I can get investment to, to go to the next stage. She gives a presentation. She gets off stage, not a single person goes to talk to her after that crazy story, except for my wife, Candice, who's my general co-general partner in our fund, who we work with Procter Gamble a lot here in Cincinnati. And she says, girl, like I've got something for you. Like Procter Gamble is doing some work in this area. We worked so closely with them. We knew what the R and D stream was that they had been working on progesterone tests and had, had not a lot of success. In their in their work, right? Billion dollar company, um, and so yeah, we we bring her in. We to really make her a partner, gamble fellow. She gets help with them um, R and D and supply chain and a variety of things. The company's growing like crazy. It's doing very well. To this day, right now, to this day, we are still the only institutional investor in that company. It's insane it's great for us it's great we're, we're gonna make a ton of money like she's gonna sell it to someone and we're gonna make a bajillion bucks but it's crazy that that those guys that day in san francisco didn't see it but that's that literally what a market failure is like that's a failure and then those of us can make money on that but also help the founder right
0: and she went on to have two kids, thanks to her innovation. And then he had one more story about another
1: founder that he's invested in that honestly never would have made it into you know the VCs in Silicon Valley radar.
2: A company called Fresh Fry. Uh, Jeremiah Chapman is a chemist in Louisville, Kentucky, right? Um, his grandmother, when he was a kid, we like like a lot of ours, would kind of fry fish or fry things. And they kind of like take the oil and put it up. Uh, yeah. Did your grandma used to do that when you were a kid or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and now we're like, why, why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> like, I've never done that in my entire life. <laughs> but it, he got obsessed with that as a kid. Like, why is she doing it? What's the deal? She actually used a potato to like filter it. And so he goes on and becomes a chemist um, and decides to create like a Tide Pod for cooking oil that you put the pot in at the end of the night it sucks all the impurities, all the dirt, all the smoky smell out of the oil. And then the next day, you just kind of throw the Thai pot out. Um, Fully organic, and it's for commercial cooking oil, right? So if you're like a restaurant, you're frying French fries all night, it extends the life of the oil for two or three days, which is like almost like 30 or 38%, that kind of thing. It saves people a ton of money, a ton of money. So this is a... a like we we're just talking about when you're a, a black chemist from Louisville, Kentucky, there is no one in your network that you would have to like be venture capitalist in San Francisco. Like there's no overlap between those, those two worlds at <laughs> all. Right? And then think about and think about VC funds in San Francisco, they insist on warm intros, right? They will not talk to you unless you have a warm intro that keeps out women, It keeps out minorities, It keeps out people from Kentucky, right? It's it, But again, that's fine, we'll make all the money. So we invested uh, in that company, one of the first two institutional investors. This company, because they have no sense that any help was ever gonna come, they just focus on doing well. Two and a half years old, they're already in 4,000 restaurants around the country, right? They're already doing multiple millions of dollars in revenue two and a half years old. That would never be true of a San Francisco firm, ever, right? And so, uh, yeah, we're just, this this is the story, this is the work that's kind of uh, the kind of founders that we're backing.
0: It's very, very inspiring. And I I love hearing stories like this. And uh, I got to tell you, Michael, I, I enjoyed this episode. Uh, Do you think we went maybe too far, though? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so.
1: (laughs) I think we still have a long way to go. In fact, next week, we're going to feature a founder who went to prison at 15 for eight years. And despite 20 years of success as an entrepreneur, he's now in his 40s. He's still grappling with the consequences of that. That and more next week on Rocketship FM. Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad free feed. All you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash rocketship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people product collective is also the home of industry the product conference industry virtual workshops and one of the largest slack groups for product people anywhere and we're also on the podglomerate network so a huge thanks to
1: podglomerate you can listen to all the podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com we'll see you here next week on Rocketship.fm.